Welcome back to another special edition of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs Great Investors. I'm Allison Mass, Chairman of the Investment Banking Division at Goldman Sachs and your host for today's episode. Today, I'm really thrilled to be joined by Pete Stavros, who's a partner and co-head of America's private equity at KKR. Pete joined KKR in 2005 and covers investment strategies across traditional large and mid-cap private equity, core private equity, and growth equity. Pete also launched Ownership Works, a nonprofit that's focused on broadening corporate ownership to help working families build wealth. We'll be discussing Pete's career in private equity, his views on the economy and investment landscape, and his efforts to enhance the financial resilience of the workforce. So, Pete, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. So I want to start with your background. You grew up in Chicago as a son of a road grader and was the first in your family to go to college. So how did your early experiences shape your work ethic and more broadly, your approach to investing? Well, on the work ethic side, I think it was just observing my parents work incredibly hard to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So my folks didn't go to college. My mom was a secretary. My dad, as you noted, worked for a construction company and they worked all the time. My dad really worked a second job rehabbing old apartments. So he would leave at 430 in the morning, drive to the job site work all day, come home, get a bite to eat, and then he was working at night. So it's hard to have that as your childhood and not have it rub off on you, for sure. So that's where my work ethic comes from. In terms of my approach to investing, I think observing my dad in particular feel not respected, not listened to, not having a voice, I think that did lead me to have a more human capital-oriented approach to investing. My dad being in a union and us living through a lot of worker strife and strikes certainly led to a real appreciation of the importance of labor relations. And my dad also spent a lot of time trying to explain to my sister and I around the dinner table how important the most junior colleagues are at any organization and they can make or break you. If your construction workers don't care about the quality of the work they're doing, you're going to suffer as the company. So tell us about some of those specific stories your father shared with you around that table about his work in construction and how it sparked your lifelong interest in the power of employee ownership. Let's see, one would be if you're an hourly worker, a blue collar worker, the fight is over hours. You want more hours because you get paid for every hour you work and your employer wants to control labor costs. So they want fewer hours. So that lack of alignment is what drove my dad crazy. He used to talk about the need to work steady. You know, if you work too hard as an hourly employee, you're paycheck goes down if you're too productive, which is crazy the way crazy that half of Americans earn an hourly wage. It's a crazy way to compensate people. So my dad always dreamt of alignment, profit sharing, didn't have to be ownership, but some reason to benefit from being more productive. And aligning incentives. And aligning incentives, yeah. So that fight over hours, here's one specific story. They took away my dad's drive time to the job site. Then they took away the drive time home, and then they took away the paid lunch hour. And if you make $15 an hour, like that's a problem. So my dad, who was a bit of the leader of his gang at work, said, you know, what we'll do to get people's attention is we will have all the road aggregate delivered intentionally at the lunch hour. And then we can refuse delivery because we're not getting paid. We're not on the job. And then we'll run the job out of material. We'll shut the whole job down. And then the ownership will come and say, what the heck is going on? So that was what they did. It was effective. But my dad would come home and say, can you believe this is what we're doing? As opposed to If I'm productive, I'm doing a great job, I should make more money. It's like the opposite. And all we do is fight over hours. So anyway, there were a lot of stories like that where my dad would say, what if we had alignment? What if we could all benefit from doing the job the right way on time, on budget? Wouldn't that be great? 
So in the same way that your father shared his experiences with you, what are some of the stories you're sharing with your children today that you hope will inspire and shape their work ethic and values in the future? Some of the stories just around the economy and the inequities that exist, we try to actively talk about. And some of it's just bringing work home where, hey, we paid a dividend on the stock at company XYZ and it was $2,000 and people were moved to tears. That's the financial situation that they're in. Thinking about their character, determination, and resilience is obviously a big thing in raising kids. So trying to make sure they know how many times I've failed and gotten myself back up. I applied to KKR three times, three different points in my career before I got a job. Wow. By the way, I never knew that. That's true. Okay. Stavros history. (laughs) And some of it they have to just see in action. Actually, a, a company that you all helped us with called Capital Safety. I have always been passionate about safety partly because of my dad and the importance of workers on a construction site being safe. But it's also, generally speaking, those are good businesses. So there was a company called Capital Safety. This is probably almost 15 years ago. And it was for sale with another bank. And it had a UK headquarters, but it was a US business. And so they inadvertently called my European colleague, who's no longer at the firm. And he said, "Ah, I don't like it. Safety equipment doesn't sound exciting. Pass. And then I found out about it like a month later, and it was almost over. There were three finalists. So I called the bank, I think it was UBS, and begged them to let me into the process. They said, it's not up to us. The client said no. So then I got the CEO's cell phone number and I got in touch with him. His name was Pat Velasco. And I said, Pat, I know you don't know me. I'm telling you, we need to own this company. We are the right owner. And I gave this whole spiel. And he said, but you guys passed on it. And I explained the disconnect with Europe and US. He said, well, you're really passionate about safety. Is that right? I said, hugely passionate about safety. And safety equipment in particular? I said, absolutely. So it's really interesting because I'm in Dusseldorf, Germany. There's a trade show for safety equipment companies. It's only once every four years. This is like the trade show. Your competitors, the finalists, they're all here. Ooh. And you're not here. Ooh. So this was four o'clock. So you got on a plane and flew over? Run home, pack a bag, call my assistant on the way. Like, you got to get me to Dusseldorf, Germany. So I show up at his booth in the morning. Love that. And he's, you're the guy I was just talking to yesterday. And so they let us in. And then we just went a million miles an hour and bought the business. And obviously I bring that back to the dinner table and Mm -hmm. try and explain to the kids of like, you just can't take no for an answer. Love that story. By the way, that's another story I didn't know about cap safety. I knew the end story, but I didn't know the beginning. And you guys sold it for us. So you also went on to study employee-owned stock plans or ESOPs at Harvard. What did you take away from that? So ESOPs, just as two seconds of background, are these very technical tax structures. They were started in 1974 as a part of the ERISA Act, and it was an incentive Congress put in place to share ownership with workers. And I was totally fascinated with that idea. I worked with Professor Josh Lerner at HBS. We published a paper on this. And basically what we did was we traced the steps of why did Congress pass the law? How did it work? Why did it not achieve its potential? There was a boom in ESOP activity in the 70s and 80s, and then it really has stalled. And so we basically just documented, it's still online if any of your listeners are having trouble falling asleep one night. It's very boring, (laughs) but it traces all the steps of what went wrong. And so the takeaway was the idea behind all of this is not complicated. Sharing ownership, the execution of it is complicated. And the execution of that law was not optimal. So you talk about the execution. What do you think has been key to the execution of all of these plans that you've driven into the employees of the companies that KKR has owned? Leadership. Everything in life starts and stops with leadership. And if you have the right leadership at these companies and they care like at a deep level, because this is a ton of work to do well, 
they feel it's their responsibility. There's a lot of good people who are just like, I hate the way the world's rigged, but it's not really my problem. I didn't create it. It's just the way things are. The best leaders and the best CEOs at this don't feel that way. They feel like, okay, I can't change the world. I can change the world for my employees. And they're willing to make it a huge priority. So at KKR, you're helping to implement this broader employee ownership model across a growing number of portfolio companies, not just the ones that you are on the board of. Talk about the ownership structure and how it can align incentives and change the culture and performance of the companies you invest in. And maybe I'll just give an example. So Ingersoll Rand, another company you all have been closely involved with us for 10 years. When we bought that company, there were 86 people out of thousands who had stock ownership. They had never measured employee engagement. Worker safety was not great. It had all the indications that the culture was off track. We brought in an amazing leader named Vicente Reynal, who I think part of it was personal. He grew up poor in Puerto Rico, really felt this was a mission of his to change the culture and to help all of his employees build wealth. And it took us 10 years. That's one of the things I always emphasize is none of this happens overnight. But the percentage of workers quitting every year went down 90%. The engagement scores went from the 19th percentile as measured by Gallup to the 90th. Engagement scores meaning what? There's a Gallup survey called the Gallup Q12, which is basically 12 questions that you ask your employees to answer that then you can benchmark and measure how much are they bringing their full selves to work? How engaged are they on the job? And that is directly correlated, as you can imagine, with customer service, productivity, on-time delivery cost efficiency. And so at Ingersoll Rand, we went from 86 people having stock to 16,000 in 80 countries. Hourly workers generated 600 million of wealth for themselves. We think it's the biggest such example of worker value creation ever. That's extraordinary. And we made a $4 billion gain and it worked out for our investors and for workers and for the company and the communities that the company operates in. So Pete, you were involved in closing the sale of CHI overhead doors to Nucor for $3 billion in 2022, a deal that was notable in a number of ways. And it was a significant win for KKR, generating the highest return of a care deal in, I think, 30 years. But it was also a huge payday for the CHI workers. So tell us about the operational improvements KKR made along with the management team, and perhaps more importantly, how the employee ownership model was implemented. So similar to Ingersoll Rand, we bought a company where a small sliver had ownership, so 18 executives. And then over seven and a half years, created this ownership culture where all 1,000 or so employees had ownership. We started measuring employee engagement, acting on the feedback that we got, delegating decision-making rights to workers. So for example, here's a million dollars a year of CapEx that you can direct that will make the facility a better place to come to work every day. So we built a health clinic, we built an on-site cafeteria, we built new break rooms. All of these manifestations of worker voice in the facility had a big impact. We were able to reduce scrap. We were able to drive inventory down, drive labor productivity in the plant, increase the efficiency of the routes our truck drivers drove. It was a million things that took the EBITDA margins from 20 to 35. And we were the fourth PE firm to own it. And people would have said, not possible. How could you possibly take the margins up that high? There's probably... 0.1% of industrial companies in the world have 35% EBITDA margins. And this is a garage door company. It doesn't have a software business hidden in it that is making garage doors. So when we sold the business, we made 10 times our money for our investors. Workers made hundreds of millions of dollars. We had truck drivers make almost a million dollars. Factory workers make six and a half times their annual income. It was a real win across every dimension. 
So to give listeners a sense of what it was like to be on that factory floor when workers found out about the sale of the business, we have a clip, which we're going to roll now. And Pete would love to hear your perspectives of what it felt like to be on the factory floor in person that day. So logical question would be, what does this mean for you financially? Because you're all owners in this business. You guys ready to get into it? Even our newest colleagues are going to get a meaningful payout of (laughs) $20,000. If you think that was good, hold on to your hats. If you joined last year, the payout is $40,000. So for this cohort, the payout is one and a half times annual pay. So the average payout is $70,000 for this group. So Pete, tell us what that felt like to be there in person on that factory floor. It felt amazing because we knew this was going to be life-changing. Life-changing is like an overused term, but you did get up to people making hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars who came into the transaction in debt. So that felt amazing. And I also, it felt amazing because we were so prepared. We were showing up with Goldman Sachs ACO to do free financial counseling, which we had prepaid for. We showed up with Ernst & Young, who was going to do everyone's taxes. We had already done years of financial literacy training. And I think we did a good job of making sure along the way, everyone understood this was earned. This was not a gift. There's a lot of research on lottery winners squander their money and can often end up worse. So it is really important along the way that people understand they're earning it. There's a weird thing with blue collar folks like my parents who feel like when something good happens, it's luck, you know, Mm -hmm. and you really need to fight against that. Yeah, it's just, I've watched that clip many times. And I said to some of my colleagues yesterday, every time I watch it, I get emotional. It looks like an extraordinary moment. So in addition to your role at KKR, you're also the founder of something called Ownership Works. Can you tell us what that is, what the mission is of that nonprofit and why you started it? It's a nonprofit that we started with Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and nonprofit foundations like Ford and Rockefeller and labor leaders. It was this really cool collection of over 60, and it will soon be 100 organizations all coming together to say, we know sharing ownership broadly can be great for the economy and great for workers and great for companies, but we know it's hard to do. Let's all work together to figure out how to optimally do this. So the mission of the nonprofit is to be a convening for CEOs, for example, in April, we're going to have 100 CEOs together working on this day and a half workshops that will represent 500,000 employees, convenings of investors, of policymakers, of nonprofit organizations. And again, trying to optimize this model, which we know is difficult. And then it's about building a movement. So it's storytelling, it's standard setting. I spend a fair bit of time in DC now making sure people understand what we're doing and why and how they can help. And so those are the dual missions of how can we optimize this approach and how can we build a movement? And do you think the model can work across a range of industries? It can definitely work across a range of industries. Some are easier than others. And the factors to consider are how many employees are there relative to the value of the equity? So think of a low value add service company or retailer. Tons of employees, equity value is not that significant. That's harder. It's harder to do something meaningful for workers. How stable is the workforce? Use that retailer example again. A lot of retailers have 100% worker turnover every year. That's hard to start talking about five-year plans. And then I would say how distributed is the workforce? So CHI was easier than Ingersoll Rand. CHI, most of the employees were in Arthur, Illinois. Ingersoll Rand was in 80 countries. That's a different challenge. That's a different challenge. 
So why isn't this model of making more employees into owners more common across the private equity industry when it so clearly drove returns? It's very hard to do. It takes an enormous amount of time and effort. This is something companies have to live every day. It's not like handsome stock out and then fly back to headquarters or to New York City and watch the results roll in. This is daily effort around employee engagement and teaching financial skills and sharing financial information and sharing KPIs you're chasing and then making sure people get the feedback on how they're doing. The number one reason people are not engaged on the job is they get no feedback. So workers in factories, they go home to their partners and they're like, how was your day? I have no idea how we did today. As opposed to them feeling like they're in the game and like scraps the goal and I know how we did today and I know how I'm gonna benefit over time if we achieve our goals. So one of the things we're fighting against to your question of why is this not more common? It's really hard to do and everyone is overwhelmed. So when you talk to CEOs, it's like, okay, Pete, you want me to double my profits, decarbonize, reduce water waste, energy consumption, drive diversity in the company. You want the financials in the 12th of the month. It's like they're drowning. Right. And then we say, and now you want to communicate with all your employees and share ownership with everyone, drive employee engagement, improve worker safety and all the other financial literacy and all the things we want to do. People are drowning. Mm -hmm. The key is CEOs and leadership teams seeing this as an enabler. If you do this, all those other things are going to be easier to accomplish. I think that's the key. The other things I would say we're fighting against are a deeply held belief that blue collar workers will never get this. Like they'll never understand stock. Like it's a waste of time, waste of money. Don't bother. We're fighting against that. And then we're fighting against, if we're being honest, we have a winner take all economy where, you know, people at the top make tons and tons of money and everyone else. It's become like Darren Walker of Ford Foundation, who's one of our supporters at Ownership Works, often says it's become normal to work 50 hours a week and be dirt poor. That's become normal in the country. So I think we're fighting against a lot, but we'll get there. So I want to pivot to the macro and get some of your perspectives. 2022 was a challenging year to say the least. We've seen record inflation, rising interest rates, and a significant slowdown in M&A activity, which I know you feel. How have these headwinds affected the private equity industry and you at KKR? Yeah, it's a tough environment. As you say, the M&A market is down, so deployment is harder because valuations are down, particularly in the middle market, not the S&P 500. Values can really be down. Financing markets aren't there, so it's hard to sell. Not a great time to sell. It's hard to sell. Strategics aren't as active. And then that all trickles down to it's harder to raise money because our LPs, our investors are not getting money back. So it is a tough environment. What's the flip side? The flip side is this is when the best deals are made. You know, if you look over history, our head of macro, Henry McVeigh, who you know well, he correlated basically stock market returns to private equity returns. And this is not going to surprise you when the stock market is sideways to down, private equity massively outperforms because we can take advantage of the volatility. And it's when our operational improvement efforts really shine through because you're not just riding a wave, you're piercing through an otherwise sideways market to perform. So it's a tough environment, but there's some bright spots too. And across our private equity business, we have 64 billion of dry powder. So lots of ability to go take advantage of it. And before you became co-head of KKR's America's private equity business, you led the industrials team. So how are the manufacturing and industrial sectors coping with the broader slowdown in economic growth? It's very mixed. Once you go one layer deeper than industrials as the overlay, there's everything from aerospace and defense to packaging. So some of them doing better than others. We have a company that does food packaging that's doing great. Defense businesses are doing great. Things that are more tied to interest rate sensitive sectors like new housing are struggling. I think it's really shining a bright light, not only on the macro factors that the industrial company is exposed to, but the quality of the business, whether it has pricing power, 
to pass through all the inflation that it's seeing and the quality of the leadership team. One of the things that's interesting is if you think about inflation, both raw material and labor inflation, the prevailing model in industrials for four decades was always raw material inflation you pass through, labor inflation you offset with labor productivity. When labor inflation is 8%, that's impossible. No one can drive 8% labor productivity. And raw material inflation, look at steel, steel doubled. So it really required a whole new way of attacking inflation that no one had ever seen because this had not happened in so long. So we found we needed to retrain people on how to think about pricing. You need to start removing raw material from your products that you just can't pass all this stuff through. It was almost a retraining of some of the really senior, really talented executive teams who just never seen it. And sitting on the investment committee and looking across all of the KKR portfolio companies, how are you helping your management teams and companies prepare for operating in a recessionary environment? I am not a big fan of the markets are going to be down. Let's go take out a bunch of costs. I've seen people do that and quickly regret it. The markets come back and then you're scrambling to find workers, find capacity, retrain everyone. And so particularly in this labor market, I think the worst thing a CEO could do is go remove capacity because it's going to be that much harder to replace the capacity and to retrain people. My encouragement to our CEOs is take advantage of the downturn. Your competitors are probably going to do those things. This is an opportunity for you to take market share to be closer to your customers, don't make those short-term decisions and go on offense. You know, this is a great time to do add-on acquisitions. Our portfolio companies have capital structures in place that allow them to be acquisitive. So my hope is if we hit a recession and now people are saying 2023 is going to be more like flattish as opposed to a big downturn. But if we hit a recession, I hope we're smart enough to think long-term and try and take advantage of the environment. So finally, I want to close with a lightning round, some short answer questions. So Pete, what was your very first investment that you made? Very first investment was Gleason Corporation, a machine tool manufacturer, so industrial company that was an old ESOP. Were you at KKR? When you- I was at Vestar Capital. All right. So what's the biggest lesson you've learned from an investment, either one that went well, or sometimes we learn the best lessons from an investment that didn't go so well? Oh, gosh. I would say in terms of lessons for things that don't go well, if you get the macro wrong, you're in big trouble. It's hard to swim against macro currents that are going against you. And for things that go well, I would say really emphasize customer feedback. Outstanding companies delight their customers. So what sector do you feel is not getting enough attention right now? I think there are ways to play this long-term issue we all have with labor availability. So there are productivity tools that we've found ways to invest in that I don't think the labor challenge, when you look at our immigration policy, demographics, early retirements due to COVID, like that's going to be with us for some time. So some of those productivity enhancing tools that companies sell, those businesses are of interest to us. So what's the best piece of investment advice you can give to our listeners that you wish someone had told you when you were younger in your career? It's not all supposed to go perfectly. If everything's going perfectly, you're not taking enough risk. So being comfortable with, I mean, Ingersoll Rand, we bought that business and there did have an oil business at the time and it tanked because Saudi Arabia refused to cut production in 2014. Things are not supposed to be linearly up to the right, which as a young person is hard to stomach, but you just need to keep in the back of your mind, you're investing a portfolio and it's not all supposed to go perfectly well. All right, my last question. So what book are you currently reading? I am reading a book by Arthur Brooks called From Strength to Strength. It's about finding fulfillment in the back half of your career. And it's a lot of, you would expect, find ways to contribute and continue to grow. But there's some real wisdom in there. He's a smart guy. I'm going to have to get that. Maybe finding wisdom in the last quarter of my (laughs) career. 
So Pete, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. It's always such a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you all so much for listening to this special episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, Great Investors. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you'll follow us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Google Podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.